I don't think it's quite like every other area of medicine. And we're going to have to evolve at a legislative and ethical and social level and have more debate about how we as a society want to deal with that information. It's so profound that I don't think there's an area of society that it doesn't in some way touch. Welcome to Pomegranate, podcast of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and this is the first of two episodes looking at the place of genomics in clinical practice, and how a physician can keep up with the pace of discovery and technological development. Sequencing the first human genome took 23 labs in 13 years, at a total cost of about 3 billion US dollars. Now a single laboratory can churn through a person's DNA sequence in two weeks, and new disease markers are being identified all the time. Some people think this heralds a new era in precision medicine, treatment tailored to an individual's unique genotype. Others are concerned the technology will uncover genetic risk factors that patients weren't looking for and didn't want to know about. We'll deal with that issue in the next episode, as well as the application of cutting-edge research into practice in the field of cancer genetics. But today, let's start with some first principles with Professor Leslie Burnett, Chief Medical Officer of the Genome One Clinical Sequencing Facility at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. Uh, 20,000 genes in the human genome. We don't know the function of all of those. So far, we have a Mendelian base of about a third of them. Around about the 6,000 out of 20,000, we have a, a phenotype for which the molecular basis is known, and probably we've found the relationship between the gene and the, and the condition in half of those. Mendelian conditions are those that can be linked to a change in a single gene, and whose inheritance can be traced through a family pedigree. One familiar example is cystic fibrosis, a disease that affects the lung mucosa. Those patients who have access to daily medical and physical therapy often survive childhood, but to a predicted lifespan of only 37 years. The CFTR gene underlying cystic fibrosis was cloned in 1988, and targeted testing for mutations soon followed. There are hundreds of known mutations in this gene, the most common of which is so drastic that it stops the protein from ever folding into its functional shape. But clinical geneticist Michael Gabbett explains how outcomes can be drastically improved in individuals who carry a more subtle variant. Uh, I'm Michael Gabbett. I'm a clinical geneticist at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital in Queensland. So there's a number of mutations in the CFTR gene um, which can lead to dysfunction and cause cystic fibrosis. Now, one of the more common mutations is one called G551D. This means that um, an individual produces the CFTR protein, just the protein doesn't work quite as well as, as it does normally. And there's medication which is now available to help that protein work better. So if you find that someone has cystic fibrosis due to G551D, then that certainly changes management. So it's a bit of a success story in recent years. Cystic fibrosis is a recessive condition, meaning that a mutant variant, or allele, must be inherited from both parents for an individual to express the phenotype. In parents that carry only one mutant allele, the normal copy generates enough functional protein to mask the effects of the mutation. However, some genes are so critical to a molecular pathway that a mutation in even one allele of the pair is pathogenic. These are known as dominant conditions, Huntington's disease being the classic example. 
Testing for many Mendelian disorders has been going on for decades, but more and more conditions have been described which cannot be resolved by a single gene analysis. So if you know what you're looking for, you know a condition is caused by one gene, you look at the one gene. But increasingly conditions are known to have a number of genes that may influence them. It may be a pathway where different parts of the pathway can be affected. It may be a condition where a number of contributing genes. So it is that one bundles different groups of genes together into commonly requested combinations, and that's basically a panel. You can buy off the shelf now a number of commercial kits that will do the most frequently requested genetic tests and and simple panels uh, to find your answer great. The second approach would be that if you drew a blank on the narrow panel, you might look at an extended panel. These are genes that there's a looser association, looser correlation, the causation is less clear. And then you've got the third approach, which is to look at the whole genome, and it may be more convenient for the patient, simpler for the diagnosis, faster, cheaper, to look at the collection of genes and look at it in one go. The technique of exome sequencing involves pulling out only those regions that code for protein, which make up 1% of the entire genome. But 70% of the genome is actually transcribed to RNA, and it appears that much of this is involved in regulating the timing and location of gene expression. Therefore, whole genome sequencing is used to process almost every strip of DNA but you still need to choose which of the 20,000 genes to focus on in the bioinformatic analysis. The advantage of collecting all the data in one go is that you're then able to reassess different panels of genes with each new diagnostic hypothesis. It's also much easier to adjust an analytic panel to the latest research findings than it is to develop a new sequencing array and have it validated for clinical use. So we are starting by focusing on the diagnosis of rare or difficult to diagnose conditions that are suspected to be genetic but have because of lack of knowledge not yielded to the application of traditional genetic testing sometimes you may have 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 genes that may be involved you can do it all in one go or you may want to do it once and reinterrogate over time uh, so the beauty about the whole genome approach is you can actually apply almost hypothesis free you can find diagnoses that weren't suspected or weren't even discovered at that point and yet being able to produce a diagnosis Uh, One of our early cases that was referred to us uh, was the case of a young child who appeared to have some form of immune disorder such that uh, their platelet levels were falling. uh, And the child was extremely ill. Uh, And so we uh, sequenced the child and other family members and we were able to find that indeed there was uh, a a fault in a a plausible gene that might explain this condition. But uh, what was interesting is that this gene lay on a pathway for which there was a medication available but not for this particular presentation but rather a quite uh, different medical condition. So uh, the clinicians decided that it was ethically defensible to apply for permission to apply this medication. And I've heard the story that the child left ICU to watch the opening of Star Wars only some two weeks later. And I think that's one of the remarkable success stories. And our dream was almost our very first patient coming through. 
paediatrics is probably where a lot of clinical genetics grew up in. So it's not all about genetic testing. Um, so there is clinical acumen involved as well. So we do have children that walk through the door and they have a you know pattern of facial features that you recognise. If you've got a very well-defined clinical phenotype and there are you know a number of genes associated with that phenotype, then that might be all you look at. Certainly, if there's no obvious condition um, apparent, then there are, I guess, what you could consider screening tests. Um, the literature says we're probably getting a diagnosis, say, 25% of the time if they come through the door cold. But the things I see are, are rare and esoteric. We're talking about conditions where there are only a handful reported in, in the world. Having said that, I've certainly witnessed conditions where you know, they've previously been unreported and a colleague has described it and then all of a sudden they sort of fall out of the sky and everyone else starts to recognise it. Some developmental conditions result from incorrect replication of chromosomes in the gametes and are easy to detect by techniques such as karyotyping or fluorescence in situ hybridisation. Examples include Turner syndrome and the microdeletion syndromes. But even in cases where no treatment is available for a paediatric patient, the benefit to the family of having a genetic diagnosis can be tremendous, says Associate Professor Christine Barlow-Stewart, Director of the Master of Genetic Counselling Program at the University of Sydney. I'm sure you've heard about genomics ending the diagnostic odyssey. What parents want is an answer. They need to know, did I do this to my child? Was it my fault? Was it something that I did in pregnancy? And so having a genetic diagnosis relieves that guilt, that blame that was often there. So it's important for a whole lot of reasons. It, it can affect how they feel about themselves and their family. That prenatal uh, question, that's one of the big questions we're asked. What's the chance of this happening again if this couple were to have another child? I guess from a, a medical uh, point of view, um, you know, it's important to give people answers, give them a, a sense of owning their own destiny in a way, um, empowering people to plan for their future. Now, for some couples, that's not an issue. They, they're quite happy. And if fate um, affords them another child with a developmental disability, then, you know, they, they're not that fussed on necessarily getting an answer. So the ideal, of course, is preconception screening. What we've done in the Jewish community with the high school program, I've been involved in that since 1995, you know, there has been no child born with Tay-Sachs disease in Australia to any couple screened. And so, you know, we, we would really encourage taking a greater, more in-depth family history and updating it as well. But many of these recessive conditions like cystic fibrosis, there is no family history. So um, asking about ancestry is very important. Like with Tay-Sachs, like the whole range of other conditions that are common in the Jewish community, if you're of Caucasian background, then testing for cystic fibrosis would be appropriate. Um, if you are of Mediterranean, Southeast Asian, Chinese, then thalassemia screening is very important as well. The entire genome is about 3 billion nucleotide bases long, and any two individuals differ from each other at one position in a thousand. To study the sequence, the lab starts by breaking the chromosomes down into fragments of a few hundred kilobases that can be read with consistency by the biochemical reagents. The computational challenge is to put the snippets back together like a colossal jigsaw puzzle. 
There are many stages in the process where errors can be introduced, and the Genome 1 facility is only the second in the world that has been accredited to meet the national standards of a clinical pathology service. It's an impossible task for a single person to be on top of all the latest advances in technology and the genetic research. Oncologist David Thomas explains what the general physician need consider during a consultation that might require genetic testing. Okay, so uh, my name is David Thomas. I'm director of the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. I'm head of the cancer division of the Garvin. I'm a medical oncologist with a specific interest in precision medicine and the applications of genomics to cancer care. So I imagine that the average physician needs to be able to separate out the conventional from the unconventional and then where to go when it gets unconventional. And that's a about referral patterns. The vast majority of things will be canonical and you know there'll be stage one breast cancer which needs a surgeon and needs a chemotherapy to reduce the chance of the tumors coming back and that will be perfectly standard. It's when the woman comes back the third time with advanced disease and you need to understand now that the chemotherapy stopped working, which test do you perform? What does it mean when you get the results? And what do you do next? It's about knowing who to go to who may have a specialist interest and provide advice. And, um, I mean, that's a part and parcel of clinical practice, I guess. Um, the generalist is, I guess, the phenotyper. So the, the most important job is, look, I think this is a genetic condition. These are the features. Um, there, there might be a differential diagnosis. Could you do a genetic test? And that's where increasingly um, genetic pathologists and clinical geneticists can help send the DNA off to the, uh, the right lab and know what's available locally or internationally, what's the cheapest test and what the implications of a test may ne- mean for other family members. I mean, you know, the genetics obviously involves your whole body. You can't hold that knowledge in your head on every single genetic disorder. Um, a lot of what we do is work with organ-specific specialists. Now, you're not expecting you know, your average specialist to be reading Nature Genetics, of course, but specialists will learn about these discoveries in the following year or two, and they bring this knowledge to the genetics clinic. You, you often find that in larger units that clinical geneticists do take up special interests. Um, Two of my colleagues, um, one's interested in cardiac genetics and one's interested in renal genetics. And it's not uncommon for for us to get on the email and and email the world expert on X, Y or Z for their opinion. But people still see their doctor as the one to go to. They want to talk to someone. And so we have to make sure that the doctors that they go to see can answer the questions they will increasingly ask. And the genetic counsellors are going to be pivotal in liaising with non-genetic specialist health professionals. So I founded the Centre for Genetics Education and on the website is every genetic service in Australia and New Zealand. The Human Genetic Society of Australasia also. Some states in Australia have um, sort of a hub model and they would fly out to do clinics and there are three main hubs in New Zealand, two in the South Island and one in the North. New South Wales has always been a bit different in that we have genetic services in a lot of the major hospitals, but there is a huge workforce shortage. Another outcome of next-generation genomics is precision medicine, 
the idea that drug or lifestyle interventions could be tailored to a person's particular gene profile. For example, blood pressure-lowering medications like ACE inhibitors are less effective in people that carry mutations in the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway. And allopurinol therapy for gout can cause severe adverse cutaneous reactions in those that carry a variant of the HLA-B gene, common to East Asian populations. David Thomas explains how pharmacogenomics could be used to find more appropriate medications. So there's certainly lots of examples where a drug's response or efficacy will be determined by uh, genetic background and differ between populations. Um, another example of a drug re reaction is um, the gene dihydropyrimidine dehydrogenase, which is important in metabolism of the drug 5-fluorouracil, which is a 40-, 50-year-old chemotherapy used frequently in, for example, bowel cancer. And people who've got mutations in that gene have really dire, life-threatening side effects to a drug which is generally innocuous. So you could imagine that in some future we all have whole genomes at birth, that the clinician who had that information for every patient on their computer would say, ah, I need to treat somebody with hypertension. Um, you would then get an alert that it comes up saying this person has a variant in the, the renin-angiotensin pathway, which makes them resistant to this particular drug. Use drug X instead. Genetic pathologist Leslie Burnett once more. And certainly we will be very keen to uh, explore the move from curative or treatment to preventive medicine and uh, well it's already happening now uh, that uh, a number of people are having the genome sequenced uh, at some point early in life and we would imagine that somewhere between the one and five percent of the population will be carrying uh, some variant that is going to potentially put them at at increased risk of a condition they might otherwise not have been aware of and so those patients will be able not patients yet, those referrers, potentially could become patients at that point and might be able to be offered uh, early monitoring or early intervention so they never will actually get those conditions. And that is, I think, one of the enormous potentials yet to be explored. Then having the extraordinary tool of having one's genome and being able to reinterrogate it, it, it really opens up one's eyes to the possibility of what may be able to be done down the track. Some of this is hype and some of this is prediction and some is reality and I'm sure the future is not as far in the future as many of us would uh, think it might be. Of course if you find a hereditary cancer then who looks after the unaffected relatives? Physicians, GPs, other specialists, they've got sick people in their waiting room You've got a well woman coming in. Will they want to see them? That's the ripple effect in terms of health delivery. One concern about handing out genetic diagnoses to otherwise healthy people is the anxiety conveyed by such a verdict. Genetic counsellor Christine Barlow-Stewart explains how one might guide a patient through this. People certainly are affected psychologically in the short term, but that does not last. For the vast majority, 12 months later, people have incorporated that information in, into their lives. And as, as part of genetic counselling, we make sure that people are as well prepared psychologically for this information as they can be. And we then support them and will refer them for extra assistance. But the bottom line is 
the pre-test preparation is so important. You've, you've got to manage the expectations, prepare them for uncertainty, prepare them for findings, for unexpected findings, prepare them for no answer. And does, does that message, that pre-test message that you give change very much depending on the condition they're interested in on whether it's treatable or not? Yes. If it's treatable, the interest in it is higher, but that doesn't mean to say that people still won't want to know even if it's not treatable because people like to prepare their lives. Um, when the test for Huntington disease, when we first isolated that gene and it was possible to test for it, 60% of people on average said, yes, I want it. Only about 20% of people turned up to have it. But some people turned up years later after they thought about it. So you, you cannot look at a person and say they will or they won't. Mm. And as a counsellor, you're agnostic about what the, the best strategy for well-being and psychological preparation is that you, you can't say what best approach no you can't it's it's called patient-centered counseling you just work with a patient in front of you walk alongside them whole genome sequencing is not directly funded on either side of the tasman australia's mbs only has specific items for hemochromatosis factor 5 light and thrombophilia protein crs deficiencies and antithrombin-3 deficiency. As well as diagnostic testing of a patient, screening of a first-degree relative is also permitted. In New Zealand, the Genetic Health Service is federally funded and will assess referrals for a much broader range of conditions. Michael Gabbett describes the comparative costs of analysing different gene panels from a whole genome sequence. I guess it's, it's a bit of a, you get what you pay for. So $4,000 is probably um, what the diagnostic labs in Australia would be charging to look at a single person's genome. Then that'd be the whole genome. I, I certainly can have next generation sequencing and have a panel done for, say, around $1,000. So I don't need all that bioinformatics done to look at the rest of the genome, I just want to look at you know, uh, neuromuscular genes, for instance, and that will cost a lot less. So it's, it's the, the bioinformatics is what costs a lot because that's bringing in an actual person with the expertise. Um, as good as computers are, you still need a, a human brain to sort of look at the data and say, oh, look, you know, the our whole genome sequencing did not find a mutation in this gene but I know from experience that this exon actually isn't read very well from next-generation sequencing. We might have to go back and look at more traditional ways of gene sequencing just for this exon. It's not a mental image of pouring DNA in one end of a sequence and pressing the on button and out comes your diagnosis at the other. And these are massive computational problems. And for very complex conditions, particularly if the gene has only recently been described and you're not sure whether the variant is causative or not, you may need to look at how it associates with affected or unaffected individuals within the family. So clearly the cost will go up because you're looking at more and more individuals. And at the moment, um, the two sources of funding are the hospital or the health entity as is the case of many other genetic tests that aren't on the medical benefit schedule. And in some cases, the patient is not eligible as a public patient, and so the patient or the family is electing to fund it themselves and pays for the cost of the testing. 
but there are a number of conditions for which uh, we're trying to draw to the attention of the government that you can only make these diagnoses by whole genome sequencing and a mechanism needs to be found to fund this. That was part one of two in this pomegranate series on genomics for the generalist. Thanks to Christine Barlow-Stewart, Leslie Burnett, Michael Gabbett and David Thomas for their contributions. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. For resources mentioned in the podcast or to claim CPD credits for listening, visit the Pomegranate website at racp.edu.au forward slash pomcast. You'll also find our contact details if you have any feedback. And please, share the story around using the hashtag RACPpod. I'm Mick Cavazzini. Please download the next episode to hear the rest of the story.